All right, well, welcome to week two of Answering the Tough Ones. I know uh, a handful of you I've talked to already uh, couldn't make it last week, so we're going to do last week's, and then also, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> we're just, uh, we'll press on. But uh, by way of introduction, my name is Nathan Wagnon, and I serve here at Watermark Community Church on staff. I'm part of the equipping team and also oversee all of the core classes. I also lead the Great Questions team, which is part of this core class, which uh, uh, pretty much everybody that's going to be teaching um, is from the Great Questions team. So we're excited to uh, walk through this stuff with you guys and, and uh, are excited about tonight. We've got, um, we're going to be covering, so last week we covered, is there truth and can we know it? So we, we covered a lot of stuff in the uh, area of epistemology. Um, how do you know what you know? And then uh, this week, we're going to cover the question, are science and Christianity compatible? So this is definitely one that we get on a regular basis um, on Monday nights when people come. Two great questions and ask us, really, it's kind of carte blanche, like whatever they want to ask. And so um, we're excited to walk through, um, just uh, as, as you do address that question um, to, with people in your life, um, what are some of the major points that you need to think through? so that you can be better equipped to engage with people in, in this area. Um, a couple of uh, notes from last week that I was uh, told I needed to remind you about. One is um, somebody left some kind of like Yeti like drink holder or cooler or something in here last week. So if that's you, um, I believe Sylvia's got it outside. Um, also, if, you, if you're not getting the... E- emails from Sylvia. She sends um, at least one, but maybe two a week out uh, regarding uh, or or pertaining to this class. Handouts, electronic stuff, announcements, all that jazz. So if you're not getting that email for some reason, then make sure um, when you walk out tonight that you re-sign your email address. For some reason, when people put their email address down, um, probably a little less than half the time, I totally cannot read it. <laughs> you know, it's like a chicken scratch on there. So um, let's uh, let's revisit the you know our kindergarten days where we you know write the A and the B and and uh, write out a legible um, email address for us. We would appreciate that. And then lastly, the handout that you got tonight um, has uh, slides on it, and the the way the slides were formatted, the text on it is really small. So if you're having trouble seeing it, fear not. Um, you'll be able to see it on uh, the screen. And then also when we upload the slides onto the website, you'll be able to reference them there as well. So um, let's not ruin our eyes and strain really hard um, to see that. And, and in the future, we'll, uh, we'll make sure that the text is, you'll be able to read it. So tonight um, we have uh, two speakers. The first one, his name's Tyler Martin. And uh, he, is, he serves as one of our key leaders on the Great Questions team. And uh, typically when people come and ask questions a- around the area of, of, of science, then uh, if he's in the room, I normally look at him like, all right, dude, this is yours, um, because I'm not a scientist. Um, and and uh, he's not a scientist either by trade, but he's done a lot of reading and, and research in this area and really enjoys it. So um, I asked him to come, just bless you guys tonight with that. And then the second speaker we're going to have that'll come up after Tyler uh, covers his material is Nika Spaulding. Nika is also on staff here and uh, she has a zoology degree from the University of Oklahoma 
and she's going to make a joke about that, but where is she? Is she back? Yeah, there she is. All right. So uh, anyway, I didn't go to Oklahoma, but she did, and she's loud and proud about it. So if you're a Sooner, then, you know, you can support her. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, if, you, if you've ever been to, like, women's Bible study or something like that, then it's weird. Micah has this, like, weird cult following of people that follow her, so... Um, but no, we're really excited about her being here. This is, this is an area of expertise for her, and um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be blessed by her. Then, I'm going to say it now. Tyler's going to mention it to you again. I'm sure Nika will mention it again. The way this is going to be formatted is they're going to teach until about 8 o'clock-ish, all right? And then um, from 8 to 8.30 um, will be a Q&A time where um, a, a panel will be up here, and it'll be just... Uh, whatever you want to ask. Now, obviously, we would ask you to keep your questions um, in, this, in the same subject arena as the s- stuff we're covering tonight, so don't ask us, like, why is the sky blue? But, I mean, you can ask that if you want. Um, but <clears throat> something pertaining to what, what's covered tonight. So as we go, if something s- sticks in your brain, you're like, man, I really want to ask this question right now, then we would ask, like, hey, just write it down. And then when we do... Um, uh, open that Q&A time up. There's this red mic over here on a stand. And when you do that, you guys can just line up behind that mic and we'll start to do some Q&A with you guys then. So please hold your questions until that time. Write them down. Um, but please ask your question. Feel free to do so. Let me pray for us and then Tyler will come up and get us started. Well, Heavenly Father, we, um, we know that all truth is your truth and that ultimately, like we covered last week, um, we're amazed that your, your son, Jesus Christ, incarnated among us and dwelt among us, and we saw him. We saw his glory. And we heard from his mouth that's recorded in your scripture um, that he is the way and the truth and the life. And so we're grateful for um, the life that he lived, the truth that he is, and so I just pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that uh, you would come and teach this time and uh, use our efforts to deepen um, our relationship with you and better equip us to accurately represent truth in the public square. We love you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. That, that ding reminded me to close my email. Hang on. <laughs> ding. All right. Okay. Must not be turned on. All right. So we'll get the mics set up. Is that, can everybody hear me? Great. All right. Well, welcome. Um, so as Nathan mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about um, science and Christianity today. I'll go ahead and go to the first slide. Um, again, sorry for the, the font uh, size on your, your handouts, but this will be available later. Um, so so. This is a big subject, right? So science and faith, two very huge things. So we want to really kind of boil that down to a, a major question. Is our science and Christianity compatible? In great, question, uh, great questions on Mondays, we often have a lot of people come, and they have difficulty trying to reconcile these two things because you'll see something in media, hear something from scientists, see it in education. You see it in textbooks all over the place. Um, this is actually a really big deal right now in debates that are going on on whether creation could be taught in the, uh, in the classroom. And we're going to touch on creation a little bit um, as well. But 
We want to try to answer that specific question. Now, there are thousands of ways that you could ask many questions about science. You may have heard certain claim and that it didn't kind of align with the way you understand Christianity or the Bible to say something. So as Nathan mentioned, just kind of write that down, and then afterwards we'll have the microphone for you to come up and, and ask that. But would ask that you kind of save that until the end. So here's how we're going to do it. Um, first, I want to talk about a really high level of science versus faith, and what are those two things, um, and what are they trying to say, and what are they trying to answer for us? Um, so we'll look at faith first, and kind of what is that? Um, what is its what is its core message? And then we'll look at science, and we'll see how they kind of uh, work together or not. Um, we'll talk a little bit about miracles and supernatural. This is a really hot-button issue with a lot of people when they think of science is, well, I, can't, I just can't buy some of these miracles that you talk about. I never see them, right? And so we live in a very naturalistic world, uh, especially in the West, where people really just have a hard time buying into this kind of thing. And then Nika will come up, and she'll talk about two specific topics that are, are really big. You've probably heard about or maybe you watched the debate between Ken Ham and um, Bill Nye recently. A lot of what they talked about centered around evolution and creation, where Bill Nye was just saying, hey, you know, science has disproved um, creation as the Bible says it, and then, um, you know, evolution is absolutely true. Anyone who denies that is an idiot. Um, so that was his position, and we'll talk, uh, or Nyko will kind of walk through a little bit of that with us, and then we'll do our, our panel Q&A at 8 o'clock. All right, so let's go first to Christianity. This, I think, is a really helpful illustration. We use this a lot in great questions for people who come, and they, um, you know, questions can go off in a lot of directions. Um, but, but what I think helps is if we get centered. What is Christianity at its core, right? And so there, I put this bullseye up here to illustrate that there are doctrines that fit in the middle of Christianity at the center of it, and then there are what we'll call non-central doctrines or secondary, secondary topics. So what constitutes a central doctrine for us is that I'm saying that it's something that most Christians have believed, if not all, throughout history, and that God's word is very clear on these. Okay, so give you some examples. I've got five up here. I do think these cover almost all of them. Um, first is the divinity of Jesus. So we're saying Jesus is a God and um, and was man. He was fully God and fully man. That's very important. There was a debate about this in the early church. There isn't anymore, and for good reason. God's word is clear about this. The sinfulness of man. If you read Romans 1 to 3, Paul is making this very clear to us, right? It's very hard to get away from this and still call yourself a Christian. The gospel, then, is very central. That is that Christ lived a perfect life died for our sins in our place, and then rose again. So all of those things are believed by all Christians. Very biblical concept. The Trinity as well. It's a difficult one sometimes to understand the Trinity, three in one, um, but it is something that, um, that we would call central and then the second coming of Christ. And so what, is, what do I mean by non-central doctrines? I'm talking about, and I've only listed a few up here, there are many, right? So these are things that that actual Christians, real believers, true, honest, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing um, Christians can disagree on these topics, and they do. So predestination and free will is a big one. We could go on and on and do an entire course on the differences of opinion and, the ju and just that area. 
You notice what we don't have in the central doctrines as well is evolution and creation, right? And so we don't put those central because we don't say that the Bible would claim or that most Christians would claim that you have to believe a certain way in order to be a Christian. So I think that it helps to understand that you can have differences of opinion on specifically on the topic we're going to talk about tonight and still call yourself a Christian and everyone would agree and the Bible would agree. Okay. So, let's talk about science a little bit. We talked about faith and Christianity, and we had to make it very clear. This is what we call the central of Christianity. What we're talking about tonight is not something that Christianity hinges on. It doesn't hang on science, but scientists would often say to you, well, that's the key thing for me, if I can just get around that, right? An atheist may come and say, I, and I put it up here, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, or I can't believe in miracles, so then I can't believe in Jesus or that he rose from the dead. But what is science? So I put the definition up here for us to kind of look at, right? And so science is knowledge about or the study of the natural world based on facts learned through experiments and observation. So right away we can see that we need to be able to experiment on and observe something that science is going to teach us. So when we talk about miracles, we'll get back onto that subject, but that's two very key things so that we can say that science requires something to be testable, repeatable, and observable in order for it to fall under the category of science at all. So a person who says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, based on what we know right now about science, that there are things that it currently doesn't have an answer to. And is going to talk about some of them. For example, what's the origin of life? Currently an unanswered question for science. Or what's the origin of the universe? Or why do we exist? So these are questions that science currently doesn't have an answer to, and so they would lead to us to be able to say that the statement, I believe in science, requires faith. Why? Because you have faith that science is going to be able to answer those questions, even though that right now some of them seem unanswerable by the scientific method that we just talked about. So faith does come into play here, and you will actually get a lot of pushback from, science, from atheists or from people who don't believe in God and would say something like this, that they would say, I don't have faith, I believe in science, that's based on facts. But quickly when we start asking the question of, well, what about the origin of the universe? What about the origin of life? It's never been demonstrated how life could come from non-life, for example. Now we get to a place where they're going to have to start making faith-based statements. So all that said, in, uh, then, then science seeks to answer the questions of what and how. What is happening and how is it happening? But that's very different than what faith is asking. Faith is asking who and why. What's the meaning behind that? And so a lot of scientists these days, when they make, for example, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, when they make statements about faith, they are moving into the realm of philosophy, right? And so they are moving beyond science and saying, this is what we see happening and this is why it happens. This is what that means for the universe or for the world. But that then jumps into a place of philosophy, right? It moves beyond what's observable, testable, and repeatable. A lot of people do this. We all do. It's our basic nature to ask why. What, like, why is this happening? Who, who caused this? And so faith answers the question, God, right? And so God did that. 
And then if we want to know why too many of those questions, we can go to the Bible and he'll tell us why. Um, so there's this uh, idea then that a lot of scientists can't be Christians, that if you want to believe in science, you can't be a Christian. But as I put some pictures up here, um, there have been a lot of famous Christians um, who were scientists and have taken science forward, for example, Galileo, um, Kepler, and Pascal. Um, and actually, Christian faith, by its nature of wanting to understand what has God made and how did he do it, should spur scientific innovation. And it did for all of these people. It did for centuries, um, for millennia, really. Um, so many famous scientists have come from the Christian faith, and their faith, they would say, drove them into science and to learning more about the world. Okay, so I actually want to bring in an atheist. Well, he's an agnostic, um, a famous astrophysicist agnostic, and uh, I'm going to show you a clip of him speaking on this subject. And so before we do that, though, what I want to point out, something that's very interesting about this, is that you, you may expect a scientist to come and say, well, you know, here's why faith doesn't fit. But this one actually, um, refreshingly, doesn't say that. He says something that wouldn't really be far off from what we would say here. So pay attention to that, and then we'll talk about it next. Consider also that in America, 40% of American scientists are religious. So this notion that there's some, um, that if you're a scientist, you're an atheist, or if you're religious, you're not a scientist, that's just empirically false. It's an empirically false statement. And what I mean by religious is you can pose the question in a way that is unambiguous. You don't ask, well, do you go to church every Sunday? Because plenty of people go to church like just for the pie, you know, or the, or the, the social scene after, after the service. You ask people, do you pray to a personal God? If you say yes to that, you're religious by, pre by presumably anybody's standards of your, of, your, of your conduct. And it's the yes to that question that applies to 40% of scientists. So uh, while there are plenty of atheists who are scientists or not scientists, to paint this as some built-in conflict is, there may be a conflict, but many, plenty of people in this country coexist in both worlds. Okay, so before we talk about miracles, uh, in another clip, this scientist actually says, you know, hey, it's patently false to say that there has to be a conflict. If you, as a believer, would say, I, I understand science to tell me more about what God has created. If you take that position, you will almost never be in conflict, which I think is a startling thing for an, uh, a non-Christian scientist to say. Most of them, at least the, the ones who are... Um, the new atheists wouldn't take such a position, but I think it is a very honest one. Now, he doesn't believe everything the same way we do, but one thing that he pointed out there, as we talked about earlier, is that, that there are many scientists who are Christian who are believers, and that it is not something that they have to hold in conflict. And so that's what we want to kind of discuss, and we are discussing tonight, is are they compatible? And we'll say yes, and actually even with, so would a scientist. Um, so what about miracles? This is a hot-button issue for a lot of people. We get this um, in great questions in many forms. People want to talk about the flood or um, the parting of the Red Sea or Jesus rising from the dead, water to wine. Um, so what about miracles? So what's interesting about miracles, and there's many things written about this, 
Um, C.S. Lewis has a really great article that we can um, reference for you later in a book called God in the Dock. Um, miracles are, are not scientific, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but they can't be studied by science. And so to try to apply scientific reasoning to a miracle is actually defeating the purpose. It's not possible. Science, as we already said, measures nature and what is natural, repeatable, and observable. But actually, by that definition, the universe itself is a giant miracle because it happened once, it can't be repeated, and we didn't observe it. We can't test how it happened either, right? So the universe doesn't fall into the scientific method in, it, in terms of its creation. So miracles, then, are not repeatable. They are not necessarily natural either, and what I mean by that is that they are supernatural, they go further than nature. So if you look at many of the miracles in the Bible, such as the water to wine, you see that God is speeding up what happens in nature already, right? And so if you took grapes and you fermented them, the water in them would turn into wine, right? But this just happened very quickly. The healing of the human body, supernatural healing that we see in the New Testament, for example, the body can heal itself, but this speeds it up, right? Jesus rising from the dead is another example of that. We know that in the second coming, death will be overcome and life will return to the dead bodies. That was sped up in Christ's resurrection after only three days, right? And so, um, so my point there is that miracles can't fall under scientific inquiry in the same way that nature does, things that are happening all the time. The Bible actually has, by some estimates, 300 or so miracles, but they're spread out over such a long time frame that you can say that they're rare. And that's another um, criteria that kind of keeps that out of scientific inquiry. It is you can't predict when a miracle would occur, right? Those in the Bible who saw them felt the same way, right? And so it's not as if they didn't believe in science. When they saw miracles happen, they hit the floor too. Their jaws fell open the same way ours would. So it's not as though you have to be non-scientific or non-thinking to even believe in miracles. Um, I would also say that some miracles um, happen today, right? So things that can't be explained, healings, um, things that a doctor would say, I have no idea how that occurred. Those are examples of everyday miracles. There are probably many in your own life that you could point out, All right? And so with that, we're going to actually go into then... Um, uh, evolution and creation. We'll have Nika come up and kind of talk to us about that a little bit. And then uh, again, so if there's anything I've said that's prompted a question for you, just save that and we'll have um, some people up uh, front afterwards to talk. All right. All right. If you don't, yeah. Thanks, Tyler. See, Nate, I also have men in my Colt fan club. So thanks for stealing my OU joke, you jerk. It's okay, though. I have another joke. If you don't believe in miracles, how else do you explain Baylor and SMU this weekend, right? I mean, the first half was a miracle. So uh, I'm going to talk about the different views of creation that you can hold if you're a believer. And so if you go back to what Tyler said, there's the cocentric circles, and we would argue that creationism and evolution is not in the center of that cocentric circle. And so there is going to be disagreement, and there's going to be disagreement among those who are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, God-fearing, 
believers. And I will tell you that every one of these positions has their pros and they have their cons. And so we're going to talk about today, what are those things that we can hold to um, that don't necessarily make us put our intellectual hats away and say, well, I'm just going to blindly believe in this. And so I'm going to talk about uh, each of these up here, the pros and cons. And again, I'm going to go quickly for the sake of time. So if you have more questions, write them down and then Nathan will answer them. So The first one, young earth theory. This is perhaps maybe the most common one that you hear of. This is the belief that there was a literal six-day period in the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, um, and that God created the earth with the appearance of age. And so what do we mean by that? When you see the Grand Canyon, people go, this has to be the work of billions of years of erosion. We would say, no, if God is capable of creating the earth, why can't he create it to make it look old? I build furniture for fun. Every one of my pieces I call rustic. That means if I mess up, I just say, well, it came with age. It's actually only two days old, but nobody has to know, right? So that's the argument there. This position does um, also hold that we believe in microevolution. So when people say, do you believe in evolution? Your first question should be, what do you mean by that? Microevolution says dogs can produce other kinds of dogs, but a dog is not going to become a cat, Um, or vice versa, and things like that. And so what they would say then is when you read Genesis 1, it said God made each of these after their own kind. He's allowing for this is the kind of animal I made, dogs. And then over time, there became many other dogs, including huskies and all those fun things that you guys have in your house, including coyotes. Don't have a coyote in your house, but things like that. Uh, One of the problems among this view is there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that there's an old earth. People have to ignore some of the geological evidence that's out there that suggests the earth is actually, in fact, really, really old. And so uh, there are different theories that counter that. Um, I will tell you this is the position of Watermark. Everybody always asks, so I'll tell you this is the position of Todd. That is not to say this is the position of everybody at Watermark. So if this is not your position, you don't have to leave. Uh, (laughs) Not yet, anyways. And so... The next one, gap theory. This is a theory that says between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there's a massive gap in time. The way that works is in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there's a massive chaotic moment that happens. Lots of time goes by, and then verse 2 starts, and it says, and the earth became formless and void. Okay, well, the way we read it, we read Genesis 1 and 2 as the God created the heavens and the earth, and then we read, and the earth was formless and void. And so those who hold to the gap theory are saying that the, that the Hebrew word is actually, it, it became. And so then what God is doing in, in Genesis 1, 3 through 31 is he's recreating the earth after all the chaos has happened, after the earth became old, after the billions of years. The problem with this theory is that to stretch the word in the Hebrew to say the, the earth became formless and void is asking it to stretch beyond what is normal of that Hebrew construct. Um, so There's the weakness of that theory, but it also allows, this theory allows for the earth to be really old, which is why it's very appealing to some people. There's the day-age theory. Oh, actually, there's the intermittent day theory. I don't really know anything about it, but Nate told me that's a real theory, so I left it on the slide. Uh, So if you have any questions about it, you can ask him about it. Uh, The day-age theory. This one is actually uh, fairly popular uh, this day and age. And so what that means is the word for day in the Hebrew is the word yom. And the word yom throughout the Old Testament doesn't necessarily mean a literal 24-day period. In fact, in uh, Genesis 2-4, the word yom is there, and it's not referring to an actual one-day event. And so some would argue that the events in Genesis on those days actually occurred, but each day may have been millions, if not billions, of years long. 
there's a problem with this view in that we believe that Adam, when he chose to eat the apple, then introduced the world into uh, sin, decay, death, and chaos. This view has to believe that all of those things would have occurred prior to Adam's sin. And so that's a weakness of this view. Another weakness of this view is that if the days are, in fact, millions of years old, on day three, God creates the flowers, and then you'd have to wait a couple million, if not billions of years, before he creates pollinators on days five and six. And so people beg the question, how would the flowers continue to exist? How would the world continue to go on? Hence the weaknesses of this view. There's also the religion-only theory, which basically states the Genesis 1 and 2 was never meant to discuss the creation of the world. It was never meant to be thought of as a scientific document. It was never meant to even be considered in this conversation. In fact, it's just talking about that God, in fact, created man, and that's where man came from, and that's what we need to believe. Um, this theory is actually one that's gaining a ton of popularity because people are looking at the overwhelming amount of evidence they think is out there that says the earth is really, really, really old and we all evolved from apes. And so in order to make that up, they're going, well, hey, maybe Genesis 1 was never intended to be a text on the creation of the earth. But they still give, interestingly enough, God credit for creating mankind. So God gets all the credit for creating mankind. There's a lot of problems with this theory that I think they have to deal with. One, same as the day-age theory, death, decay, all of that enters into the world before Adam sins. Also, who then is Adam, right? If Genesis 1 and 2 are only really a figurative thing that talks about God is the creator of the world, then what do we do with Adam and Eve? And if they weren't actual historical figures, then what do we do when Paul talks about Adam and says through this man came sin and death and then through another came grace and all of that in Romans? So the fact that this view has no historical Adam uh, creates a real problem for them. The other problem is, and you just pose the argument, so if we evolved from apes, at what point did the ape-like human structure become accountable to God, right? And so there, there's the weakness in that view as well. The thing I want you to see about this, though, is every one of these views allows for God to still be the first cause, that God had to initiate creation, God had to create mankind, and God had to set it forth and put it into motion, it's one of the biggest differences between this and Darwinian evolution, which Darwinian evolution would say, no, 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 there is no God involved in it. All of us are, the, are created through time and process and chance and matter, and it all came together, and it created humanity. And that view is not Christian. That view is wholly something else. But if you have people that are somewhere within the realm of this, then we would say, yeah, you're probably within the realm of what Christianity allows to be an honest interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. I will tell you, there's a man at our church named Ray Bolin. He's got a PhD uh, from somewhere, and, uh, and he's super smart, and he works for Probe Ministries. And so if you're really interested in this topic, you go to probe.com and read all the articles. And, and Ray Bolin himself has not actually landed on any of these theories. He, he leaves them in tension. He goes, you know, I look at a lot of evidence that seems to tell me that there is a historical Adam, and that's very compelling to me, and so it's difficult for me to imagine a religion-only theory. Uh, but at the same time, he goes, hey, I think there is some evidence that the earth is older than we think it is, which allows him to, to hang in tension with the young earth theory. And so if somebody as smart as Ray Bolan isn't landing on either side of the fence, you don't need to feel like you have to have all the answers either. And so all I'm asking is that as you have these conversations with people, you be gracious enough for Christianity to have each of these views. And if you want to land on some view and argue Monday nights, Nathan will be there. He's happy to talk to you about it. Uh, But Nathan did mention, I did go to the University of Oklahoma, and I got my degree in zoology. And all it qualified me to do is to get another degree in theology. The joke is you're not even qualified to work at the zoo unless you want to work in the gift shop. And so 
Uh, hear me say, I am not an expert of animals at all. I do like the zoo. Uh, I get no discounts for having a zoology degree. I've asked multiple times. Um, but what happens though, is when people find out I have a zoology degree and then they also find out I have a theology degree, then they go, oh, then you must be really confused. And I'm like, well, what's there to be confused about? And they go, well, since you have a zoology degree, then you know every legitimate scientist that's ever walked the planet knows Darwinian evolution is what is true and you have to believe it. And I was like, well, um, let's back the assumption train up just a little bit. That's uh, not, in fact, true. Now, I will tell you, in my four years at OU, there was never a single moment when I was introduced to a single scientist in my books that disagreed with Darwinian evolution. But uh, I went to college when the internet was around, so I know these things, right? And so there is a strong bias in the scientific community. Tyler touched on it earlier. Uh, Science is becoming a religion as opposed to a means by which we observe and study the natural world. And because it's becoming a religion, you start messing with people's religion, it's like you're talking about their mama. And so what I want to introduce you guys tonight is so many people think as Christians, we've got to take our intellectual cap off. And in order to actually be respected in the scientific community, you have to be a Darwinian evolutionist. And hopefully with some of these quotes tonight, you'll be able to see that's just not in fact true. Um, that in fact there are plenty of people within this field of study that don't hold to Darwin evolution. So here's the first quote. More than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on earth rather than to its solution. At present, all discussions on principal theories and experiments in the field either end in stalemate or in a confession of ignorance. Ignorance is not a word (laughs) people like in the scientific community. But uh, you can appreciate the honesty of this guy who's writing this journal. He goes on, Francis Crick. Anybody know who he is if you don't read the little tag next to him? Anybody? That's all right. I already told you the answer. So Crick is part of Watson and Crick, and they discovered the helical shape of the DNA. They're pretty smart guys. Um, And this is what he has to say about it. He says, what is so frustrating for our present purpose is that it seems almost impossible to give any numerical value to the probability of what seems a rather unlikely sequence of events. He's talking about natural selection and all that. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. A miracle. Well, if science does not allow for the observation of anything other than what is natural, what is recurrable, what is observable, then if the origin of life is a miracle, then maybe we need something beyond science to talk about it because science is limited to what is natural, as Tyler already pointed out. Um, Dr. Stephen Jay Gould, he is a really famous paleontologist, uh, and he is also an atheist and uh, pretty fairly well-spoken on his beliefs about it. One of the things that they'll tell you is that the fossil record, they always bring up the fossil record. Oh, the fossil record, it shows you all this stuff. And you're like, okay, great, fossil record. And, uh, and then actually, in fact, when you look at the fossil record, it's very lacking. In order for Darwinian evolution to be true, what you would expect to see in the fossil record are lots and lots of transitional species. You should be seeing animals that are progressively moving to, towards different kinds of animals. And in fact, we don't see that, hardly at all. Um, and it's a massive weakness within the Darwinian evolutionary view. And very few people are willing to own that. And I remember one time raising my hand in class and being like, hey, I'm a little underwhelmed by the evidence here and being silenced. And my teacher going, hey, that's enough of that. And I was like, thank you for uh, fostering intellectual curiosity, you jerk. And so, um, so all that did was anger me, and so I continued to poke at the bear until one day he kicked me out of class. But 
Uh, I mean, I didn't have anything to lose. I was a zoology major. So, but you can almost applaud Stephen Gold for going out on, on a limb here and saying, look, the fossil record with its abrupt transitions offers no support for gradual change. The Darwinian evolution view hinges on that things gradually evolved into other organisms. And yet, the evidence that you would expect to see that prove that is massively lacking. And a paleontologist who happens to be the best at what he does is willing to own that. Just so you know, anytime you go into places like the Perot or natural science museums and you're looking at those specimens, most of the time they're just, y'all know they're plastic, right? If you ever knock one over, you're not actually knocking over a million-dollar specimen, so don't worry about it. I don't recommend that you do that, but uh, it's not like you're destroying a Monet. Most of the time they're just assumptions. Hey, we think this is what this might have looked like. They don't actually have any fossil that, that validates their claim. can imagine my shock when I found that out. Uh, Dr. Watson here, who's a professor of zoology in London, says evolution is a theory universally accepted not because it can be proved to be true, but because the only alternative special creation is clearly impossible. What I'm trying to show tonight is that science has left the field where it belongs, where it's supposed to study what and how, and it's starting to enter in the field of who and why. And they're, they're admitting it. I mean, that's the silly part of it. I have a zoology degree. I might as well tell people I had a religious studies degree because as passionate and as involved in this science that my professors were, it was very personal when I disagreed with them. He goes on, and and Richard Dawkins, who's a part of the New Atheist Movement, and if you're not uh, familiar with any of Dawkins' work, uh, don't waste your money, but it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. He leaves no possibility for you to be an intelligent individual who possibly disagrees with Darwinian evolution. See, now you're messing with his mama, right? This isn't just about the field of science any longer. Richard's taking it personal. If you guys haven't seen the movie Expelled yet, you've got to go see Expelled. It's fantastic. It's, uh, it's pretty old at this point. But Ben Stein, who's a Jew, created it. And he was, he was wondering, why is it that so many scientists in the scientific community who are believers are being silenced or kicked out of their jobs? So the whole documentary is, why are Christians being silenced in the scientific field? And so the movie ends with him sitting down with Richard Dawkins. And he's like, okay, Richard, how did the earth begin? Because this is always the question that... that, that Scientists can't answer. How did it all begin? What is the first cause? What set it all in motion? How did we go from nothing to something? And if you remember, I showed you several theories that said it came from God. We don't know exactly the mechanism by which it came forward, but we know that God in the beginning is the one that created it all. And so Ben Stein starts pushing Richard Dawkins, and then his best answer is, well, maybe an intelligent being from another galaxy far away happened to start this whole thing. And I was like, you just said aliens. Uh, which is fine. It just begs the question, where the aliens come from, right? And, in, and he says an intelligent being. It's very interesting. I'm like, so you, you argued for intelligent design. You're just arguing that it couldn't possibly be God. And the question is, why can't it be God? And I think the answer to that is if there is a God and he did create it, then you're accountable to him. And I think that reality is just too shocking for people like Richard Dawkins. I like this quote here. Darwin's book on the origin of species was published in 1859. It is perhaps the most influential book that has ever been published. True story, I actually got to eat Thin Mints in my lab in college uh, celebrating his like 100 and whatever year anniversary. And I was like, Thin Mints, I mean, I don't care why we're, you know, celebrating, but 
It's like, what an odd thing to celebrate. It is perhaps the most influential book that has ever been published because it was, so, uh, because it was read by scientists and non-scientists alike, and it aroused violent controversy. Religious people disliked it because it appeared to dispense with God. Scientists liked it because it seemed to solve the most important problem in the universe, the existence of living matter. In fact, evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. Right? Science is now entering into the, the realm of philosophy. It's entering the realm of religion. It's beyond the scope of what it's supposed to be able to do. And when you do that, now the rub comes in. Because if that's what it's going to do, then you're right. Christianity and science cannot coexist. But the problem isn't Christians. The problem is scientists who are choosing to make their field of study a religion rather than an ability to observe what is natural and to repeat it. And so that's the rub. So if you're going to answer the question, are Christianity and, and evolution, are they compatible? Are they science, or excuse me, science and Christianity compatible? Well, if they'll stay where they belong, yes. But if they're going to make leaps and bounds and, and conclusions and philosophical statements, then, then no. So going back to Tyler's original talk about this at the center of the universe, here's the, here's the big question of whether or not they're compatible. Yes, as long as they stay where they belong. The question at the end of the day is, do you allow for a world to have supernatural things to happen? This is the question. And if you start at the fundamental level and say, no, absolutely not. There is no way anything supernatural could ever happen. Then you have no choice but then to be a scientist and you might as well make it a religion because we're all going to worship something. But if you step back and go, you know what? I think there might be miracles. I think there might be something supernatural that happens. Then suddenly you open yourself up to the possibility that maybe there was a God who created this universe. At the core of what we believe is that a man came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, three days later rose from the grave, and in doing so took on the sins of the world. And with his resurrection, we all gained the ability to enter into heaven with him. If you believe that, you are believing the most critical supernatural thing that has ever happened. If you believe that, it's not that big of a stretch to believe that God created the world in six days or that God created the world and then over billions of years because of, because of his evolution that he put into place it continued on. But at the core of what you believe, you do not allow for the supernatural, then you have no choice but then to reject Christianity entirely. But science is a field of study that observes what and how, not who and why. And so if you don't have anything better to do in two Saturdays from now, Saturday, September 19th, we're going to have a training day on uh, Jesus and this very thing, and whether or not he rose from the grave. And so if you're sitting here going, you know, I don't know. I don't know if miracles can happen, then I would highly encourage you to come and find out about it. And if you're sitting here going, you know, I do believe in miracles, then I'm telling you it's not that big a stretch to believe that God might have created this whole thing, and he should get a little bit of credit for it instead of aliens from a faraway land. So at this time, I'm going to invite Nathan back up as well as Tyler. And then, uh, Nate, do you want to introduce... Yeah, great. You got me? All right, sweet. Hey, I want to uh, drive home a couple other points, especially around the concentric circle uh, model. If you, um, I, in fact, I would say this has probably been, uh, from as an apologetic tool, this, is, uh, this has probably been the most effective thing um, in, in helping people to place... Um, their questions or issues that are keeping them from responding in faith to God in the right order, right? 
So a lot of times people will come in on Monday nights and they'll say, I mean, for instance, a young lady I talked with a few months ago <clears throat> just could not get past um, an issue that did not fit in the center of the concentric circles. It was not, a, it was not an essential issue, but in her mind it was. And so just showing her this and saying, hey, um, in fact, you can actually hold to various views on that issue and still be a Christian. Um, and this is where uh, typically when you get into fundamentalist type circles, pretty far right, um, pretty far uh, right positions, then uh, you get this dogmatism about secondary issues to where the mistake that's made is we'll take inerrancy or predestination or free will or creation or evolution or whatever, and we'll take these secondary issues and put them into the center, right? And that's a mistake. Don't ever do that. <laughs> All right? If you don't take anything else away from tonight, don't do that, okay? Um, because you, the only thing that's required to be Christian is to hold to the essential doctrines of the faith. Um, and so now, can we have heated debate and, and uh, actually break fellowship over some of these really important issues? Absolutely, right? But um, that doesn't mean that that person um, is not Christian, and so science obviously is one of these things. So if someone is making statements like this, then, then you can help them see like, hey, that's an important question. We can talk about that. We can dialogue about it. We can research it together. I would love to research it with you. Um, even if you don't know the answer, I mean, I think an appropriate response is, I don't know, but let's find out together. And that's an invitation to, um, uh, to instead of getting into the, the culture war language that a lot of times defines a lot of these conversations, where someone asks a question and you feel like, oh, I've got to defend the faith and all of Christianity hinges on the words that, that are about to come out of my mouth, right? Then typically what happens is people take a defensive posture and either it's the whole fight or flight thing. You either fight or you're like, I don't know, and you run away, um, fight or flight. And, and I would invite you to, to consider another option of, hey, I don't know, but I do believe that all truth is God's truth. And so I believe that the question you're asking is really important. And, and so let's, uh, let's use this opportunity to, instead of, you know, uh, reverting back to culture war language, um, let's use this as an opportunity to enter in, um, an opportunity to draw uh, closer, to research this together, to, ask, to honestly ask this question. Look, if, if this is true, then no amount of, uh, you've probably heard this before, no amount of scrutiny is, gonna, is, is going to uh, um, take, take this down. So, um, and, and I, Nike and I, one of our mentors, um, who is actually going to speak at that training day event, which I would highly encourage you to come to, um, has always told us, he's like, hey, you need to be in relentless pursuit of the truth. Like, no matter where it leads you, go there. And so, um, and, and we just, I mean, we just happen to believe that the end of all of that is a person who's, who's Jesus Christ. So um, we'll, we'll continue to refer to the concentric circles because it is so crucial in helping people think through a lot of their issues. Um, again, in, in a culture um, where a lot of times um, we can draw these really hard lines where they don't belong, then a lot of these issues that, that um, are keeping people from, from faith are actually unnecessarily keeping them from faith. There's no reason why they should. <clears throat> so... That was a comment I wanted to make. Another comment that I wanted to make is to refer a book to you. Um, I'll say it now, and then Sylvia can include it um, in the uh, email she sends out next week. It's, it's by um, uh, Paul Eddy and Greg Boyd. It's called, um, what is it called? What's their book called? Jesus Legend? Yeah, The Jesus Legend. Sorry, my mind just went blank. 
But uh, in this book, the Jesus Legend, it's it's uh, it's basically a um, a historical um, book that that uh, takes people through the synoptic Jesus tradition. In other words, um, it, are, are the stories that we have about Jesus reliable, and what do they mean? Um, and in the Jesus Legend, they do a really good job in the first kind of third of that book to to drive home what Tyler and Nike have been talking about. How um, truly, truly. To say that miracles are impossible, which is what the naturalism worldview that holds to Darwinian evolution has to say, right, um, is, it, and I would argue, even more of a leap of faith than it is to say that miracles actually do exist. Um, which brings us to um, drive home another one of their points, and that is uh, the nature of miracle. It's not like miracle is like this alien thing that we never see. In fact, the miracles we actually see in Scripture are reinforcing that no the sovereign over the natural world um, is manipulating his natural world, um, not in a sense of making bread and, or, or stone into bread like, like the enemy tempted Jesus to do, right? But what we do see Jesus do is he makes bread into what? More bread, right? Um, he's, he's, he, he makes fish into more fish, and fish have always turned into more fish, right? Bread has always turned into more bread. He's just, he's just speeding it up and compressing it to, to show like, hey, actually, I'm the one that made all this to begin with, right? And I'm showing you this. Um, so even by the nature of what miracle is, we see actually that, that the, the sovereign of the universe has actually entered into um, our story. So anyway, those are just a few points that I was tracking with as I was listening. So the red mic is over here. I would invite you guys now, um, if you have a question, get up um, and, and uh, head over to the red mic. It should be on. Um, and Jeff, if you'll unmute that so it'll go hot, then at this time, like seriously, um, y'all just ask whatever questions. Somebody's got to be brave and do it. Um, otherwise, we're just going to sit here and look at each other. <laughs> so um, some brave, which typically we do on Monday nights. Like we will sit there and stare at people until they ask us a question. So, um, anybody that has a question, feel free. When you do come up, if you'll state your name, just to kind of introduce yourself, and then uh, your question. Birthday and social security number. Yeah, right. right. And your pin to your Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, this is Joseph Taub. Um, <laughs> y'all are like, who is that guy? Um, Joseph also serves on our Great Questions team, and uh, um, we're glad to have him sitting on the panel with us. So just introduce him. Okay, your name and... I'm Carolyn Sanchez, and this is probably a really easy question, but back to point one um, with this, you know, the earth was created in six exact days. What is the, ex, you know, the refute is that is it's, you know, not long enough, and the, old, the earth is really old, so... What's the counter-argument to why Watermark believes that and what you all believe on that point one? Yeah, so the counter-argument to the young earth creationism? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like, how does Watermark explain that the earth's really old? I think she's asking how do we support the young earth theory. So how do we answer the objector? Uh, Yeah, so big part of it is um, people look at the geological evidence and erosion and things like that and would just say, hey, the earth has to be really old. Um, And what we would say is that God can create things with the appearance of age. We'd also say that during the flood, um, and we believe it was a worldwide flood because scripture says it was a worldwide flood, 
things changed massively during that time. And so a lot of the erosion that, we, that people see and they say, hey, this would take millions of years, we would say, well, what if there was a like, massive thing that happened, this catastrophic event, this worldwide catastrophic event that caused mountains to form and craters to form and all of these things. And so part of it is not simply that God created it with appearance of age, but also there was this catastrophic event that happened early on in the creation of the world, which formed and shaped the world as we see it today. Yeah, something I would add to that is, um, so we see um, if, if there's any kind of historical reliability to Genesis uh, 1 and 2, we see Adam being created, you know, out of the ground. And, and uh, it, he's not born out of the ground. He's created out of the ground, and he's created as a man. So um, if, if, this is, if we believe in the historical Adam, Adam is, is also created with the appearance of age. Um, and so it's, it's not this far-stretching um, deal that, that God would also create the earth with the appearance of age. Um, anybody else want to add anything to that? You know, I think um, there are actually some really good debates on this where you would see both sides if you wanted. Um, Ken Ham is, and actually he's, he's been here to Watermark at some time in the past, um, has debated another Christian named uh, Hugh Ross who holds the old earth. And, and you just kind of hear both sides and how they're both arguing that um, biblically. It's very interesting if you wanted to learn more about that. Hello, I'm Jim, Jim Ewer, and I have a question about carbon dating because my understanding is a lot of the people that claim that the earth is millions and millions of years old use carbon dating and I've heard that it's not a not that accurate and then I've also come to understand that people can't even agree on the age of the shroud of turban or, or the, the Jesus' shroud which is two, supposedly 2,000 years old or whatever well if they can't use that to prove that's only 2,000 years old how can they say that it, the earth is millions of years old if no one can even agree that it's 2,000 so I just had a question on the carbon uh, yeah, if you want to entertain yourself, you can actually Google uh, carbon dating of like they've carbon dated live organisms and found them to be thousands of years old. And I'm like, well, that penguin was born five years ago. So uh, part of the theory and why they think it breaks down is what they're doing is they're looking at the way they believe carbon breaks down. But they're basing it on the way the earth is now, the environment of the earth is now. And so the assumption is, is that it's always broken down at this pace. And so then they back it all the way up and say, okay, if this is how fast carbon breaks down, then we can revert it back. The problem is, is we don't know that entropy is moving at the same speed if the earth is young. Um, especially, and again, you're going to hear us talk about the flood a lot because a lot of the young earth uh, belief hinges on what happened in the flood. And so... With the flood, they believe there was water over the earth as well as water on the earth. When the flood happened, the water from above broke, and in doing so, the atmosphere changed considerably. Um, They believe before it had greenhouse effects and was able to trap in more of oxygen and the good things. And so it's based on the assumption that we know and can predict how carbon has always behaved. And what we're learning is, is maybe we're not as confident. In fact, the scientific community is moving away from carbon dating and using other elements for dating purposes because they feel like those are even more accurate. Um, and so that's part of why they're having difficulty with things like the Shroud of Turn and others. Yeah. Hi, guys. Justin Sauls. Thanks again for doing this. This class is, is, is amazing. Um, I have a two-part question, if I could. <clears throat> I wanted to get the panel's opinion on the day-age the day theory 
um, that um, in Genesis, the author's not really referencing a 24-hour day. The sun <clears throat> wasn't created, I think, until a few days later. So that whole, and, and plus I believe the earth, you know, our 24-hour day comes from the speed of the spin of the earth, which I think has been speeding up or maybe slowing down. I'm not a science major, but. Um, and then the second part of my question is, going back to, I guess, the theory that the church has of the literal six days, um, where do you put the existence of dinosaurs in the context of that theory? I can try on the first one. Um, I actually personally hold to more of the day-age theory myself. Um, and so you mentioned that the day, and, sh- and Nika mentioned it as well, has multiple meanings. Um, so I go there first, that word yom has at least three um, types of meanings in scripture, and one of them is the 24-hour period. Um, One of them is a 12-hour period of sunlight, and another one is some period of time, like in the day of Noah, right? And so that's where someone could go and say, and that's where the, the argument will hinge first, is that this could mean an age, right? And so that's where the age comes from. Um, they're actually, I'm going to refer back again to the, the, um, PhD that I mentioned, Hugh Ross, has some really great things on, on where he, from a scientific perspective, sees uh, how um, God did that in those, those ages. Um, and that, you know, with the sun, for example, showing up later, that the position is, well, well, this is from a person on earth looking up into the void. And so from that perspective, that narrative fits, right? Because the sun is, um, is there, it's created in the beginning. Um, but it is clouded by the early Earth atmosphere, um, so there's darkness. Um, so it's just things like that that are actually far beyond um, what I remember at the moment. But um, you can find a lot more out about that uh, and that theory. And, and I would say he's probably the main proponent of that right now. Oh, I don't want to talk about dinosaurs. <laughs> I haven't seen the land before time in a while. Um, there is a real truth real quick on the dinosaur question. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Have you seen it? Me neither. Um. <laughs> All right. I get to talk about dinosaurs. <clears throat> the answer is we don't know. Um, and, uh, and that's okay <laughs> that we don't know. I, I typically, when, when, when this question comes up with people, which is which frankly, and I'm glad you asked, Justin, right? Um, well, I'm Justin, I'm glad you asked it because um, a lot of times... What you get, we talked about this last week as well, so if you weren't here last week, then you might be hearing this for the first time, but a lot of times when you're engaging with people in the public square about these issues, um, and I want to say this as, as gently and politely as I can, but, um, but I also want to be honest, most of the time the people you're interacting with have not critically thought through these issues. Um, and so what they're doing is they're regurgitating a, a culture soundbite from the culture war language that's going on around this issue. And so they've always just heard, like, well, what about the dinosaurs? And so it, it ends up being, like, kind of cannon fodder for them. It's like, oh, you're Christian? Well, what about the dinosaurs? You know? And typically, I mean, that's a totally loaded question. You know? It's intended to be um, a, a deflector from, you know, from some of the more essential issues. And so I think the way I typically respond to it is, hey, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are a bunch of different views around um, even what dinosaurs are, where they came from, um, how, how, uh, where they fit into um, this whole six-day creation period. Um, I mean, I'll tell you a couple of the theories that I've, that I've heard. It, it, it definitely, and not everybody even on this panel is a young earth 
person, you know. So um, it definitely, f- um, for, for a, a day-age or uh, intermittent day theory or um, kind of the, the, uh, the theories where theistic evolution can fit into it, it makes a lot more sense to like, because you're just like, well, they, they lived in, the, in this period um, uh, of, of the development of the earth. But the, probably the best <clears throat> theory that I've heard on, from a young earth perspective, um, and it's held by a handful of people that um, uh, kind of basically say that, like Nika said, prior to the flood, there was this seventh atmo- atmospheric layer um, that was a canopy of water. It created um, uh, it created a greenhouse effect, where, whereby um, organisms grew much larger than they than that we normally are now, constricted because we have uh, less oxygen, less um, you know time. Even um, I mean, the, I think that the young Earth people would also point to that seventh atmospheric, that greenhouse effect, and saying this is why people lived so long um, uh, because the effects of of, of age were just lessened because of that, and that um, that dinosaurs, as we know them, were destroyed and in the flood um, became extinct, and then now um, we have uh, just a, a fossil record of them. But I would point out even what Nika said before: a lot of times people think like they're finding these intact, you know, dinosaurs, and I think probably most of the time it's a handful of bones. You know, um, I mean, I. I think you, you definitely see, you know, uh, some fossil records. But even then, I think, like she said, um, it's very difficult to say with any kind of certainty exactly what we're looking at because we don't have anywhere close to all the information um, to be able to place that where it belongs. So my typical response is to say, like, there's a bunch of different theories about that. It's interesting. We can talk about it and say, oh, yeah, that's good. That's a pro. That's a con. Sweet. Awesome. Um, but then if, if, if this is an answer that's keeping people from responding in faith, to Christ, then I typically take them back to the concentric circles and say, actually, um, the question isn't about dinosaurs. The question is about the resurrection, um, which is what we're going to talk about here in a couple of weeks. Um, so, And thanks for sharing your opinion. I'm, I'm going to hog the mic for one more second. Yeah, just, to, cool. just to follow up. I was going to say, there's no one behind. We got time. There's someone behind. <laughs> no, we got time. Yeah. And if, um, if, you, if you have a question, feel free to come get up and stand in line. Yeah, so so um, one of the, the theories that I've heard is, you know, it, it, in the book of Job, the author references a, a dinosaur-like creature, and it also refers to that creature as being the first among God's creation. And I, I think that um, when you think of uh, the key resource that essentially makes the world go around, oil, right, um, that that resource is, is, is located where it is and is as abundant as it is in large part because of, you know, the fossil fuels, which ultimately were the dinosaurs. And I think that when I think of God um, in, his, in his creation sequence and strategy, <clears throat> because he is incapable of error, he doesn't, um, he's not going to necessarily, tr- he's not going to trial and error, he's not going to zap things into place. He's, he, he could very well have established this life uh, and this, this sequence of, of, of created beings for the purposes of ultimately leading to the fossil fuels and ultimately leading to the resource that affects every, everyone every day across the, across the planet. Um, so anyway, just I'll, I'll walk away, but um, uh, interested in, in, in maybe as I walk back to, to hear your thoughts on the creature that, if you guys have looked into this, the creature that's referenced in Job as being yeah, the first Leviathan. among God's creation. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Joseph? Maybe it's a dinosaur. 
Go no, for it. No, no, yeah, no, yeah. He doesn't want me talking about that. I don't like talking about dinosaurs either. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, you look at the language of it, and um, there are some who are like, it's describing an elephant, but then you see that his tail is like that of a cedar, and you look at the elephant's tail, and it's like, you know, and then you look at that, and you're like, you know. Uh, so, I mean, there are quite dogmatic people who would say that that is a dinosaur in Job. I, I think, um, and I'm not, look, I don't, I mean, I saw Jurassic Park like y'all too. I think they're pretty cool. Uh, I don't know that that is a dinosaur. I don't know that it's not. I also know that what happens though is sometimes people get super dogmatic and they stretch the language beyond the poetry that it is. Um, and so there's a very clear message going on in Job, and, and that's God saying, hey, man, look, were you there when I did all this? Are, who are you to knock on the counsel of, of me? And so um, there is... There is some poetic language going on there, but uh, if you were to literally draw out the Leviathan, there could be. I mean, it seems to be suggesting, and I think a lot of people um, have believed that that was a dinosaur. And and I'll say, I mean, there is, there are archaeological finds where it seems like people in caves were drawing what looks like dinosaur creatures, which then says, well, hey, then dinosaurs and humans had to have been together at about the same time period. And if that's the case, then uh, it wouldn't be a far stretch to believe that they were there at some point. I just can't imagine what the ark would have been like, though. You know, <laughs> Tyrannosaurus Rex running around on there. And, and That's why he doesn't let me answer. There's always a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more animals, but T Rex ate them all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's the dove? Oh. And if we really want, you know, a like a literal like, uh, what was this thing in Job? I mean, let's not forget, like, the only option isn't dinosaur. There's I maybe mean, some other large reptile that has since gone extinct, or some, some cousin of a reptile that is now alive that has since gone, since gone extinct. Maybe it was a really big crocodile, and crocodiles don't get that big anymore. I don't know. Um, well, it's not like it has to be a dinosaur in order for the text to be you know, reflecting some kind of reality, some, some part of reality. Yeah, and I would just again drive home the fact that when you get this question, um, you know, and that's why you feel like we're deflecting it a little bit because I think that's what you should do as well when you get the question. <laughs> I mean, from an apologetic standpoint, when you're answering this, and, and from an evangelism standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, you are not driving people to an answer about the dinosaurs because there's not one, right? You are driving people to the empty tomb because that's where the crux of Christianity um, hold, or that, that's where it belongs. Um, so... Ryan Talbot. Yes. What's up, brother? That is my name. Um, I have a question about young earth creationism. and You just mentioned it's best to point people back to the center of the circle, but um, I've heard God's not a God of deception before, and how is that good reasoning against, um, you know, I guess most of the scientific community presumes either carbon dating or, you know, the stars are so many millions of light years away and billions of light years away and so um you know how could the light get to earth without you know time having been that long and, and so it seems deceiving if that's the case and so anyway is that good reasoning kind of against that theory and then how would young earth creationists respond to that uh, I can, yeah go yeah, ahead go ahead um uh, i hope it's good reasoning because that's part of the reason that i'm not a young earth creationist <laughs> Um, I think there, there is a lot of evidence pointing to an old earth, um, not just 
not just radioactive isotope dating like carbon and other, other elements that, that Nika mentioned, um, but also we can measure uh, uh, markings left by the tides and see like, oh, this goes back hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. There's, there's the distant starlight problem, as you mentioned. The stars are billions of light years away, but we've only been here for 6,000 years. That seems odd. Um, while I acknowledge it's fully within God's power to create an Earth with the appearance of age, um, it just seems strange. Um, why do that when everything that we observe is going to point the other way? Um, and, and that to me is one of the advantages of uh, the, the religious only view that they, that they talked about. I think, I think maybe Nika doesn't like that view so much, but um, that's kind of more, I, more where I land because it just kind of sidesteps the whole like, science question of like, well, how does Genesis fit with science? Well, I don't know. It was never intended to. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know what science was when it was written. Moses wasn't thinking, oh, let me think about scientific method. And, you know, he was writing to people who just came out of 400 years of Egyptian polytheism and saying, no, no, it wasn't all the other gods you've heard of. It was Yahweh. Um, and so when it's not, when, it's, when, when we don't have to treat it as a scientific treatise, then distant starlight's no longer an issue. Um, but I think... Yeah, I'll go ahead and defend my honor over here. <laughs> no, uh, I think, you know... Um, the more I say the Old Testament, the more the religion-only view seems really attractive. And then the more I say the New Testament, the more the young earth seems very attractive. And that's why I can really be empathetic to Ray Bolin, who, uh, who, hasn't, who hasn't landed. Um, and so to your point, Ryan, I think, you know, I look at it and I go, well, deception is making an, you're making a judgment call on, on what God is doing. I would just argue, if I were going to argue for the young earth point of view, just go, there's allowing for God to create artistry as well. Um, and so while some may interpret, hey, it's deceptive to make the earth seem like there's galaxies billions and billions of years away, I would go, well, it's pretty too. Uh, so I think just allowing, allowing God to create it without necessarily knowing why does take some faith, but I also don't know that you necessarily have to rule out deception. And, I mean, just to give the counter to Joseph's point, because I think Joseph made some really good points just then as well as to why people are, um, I mean, you look at the religious-only view, and... If you look around the ancient Near East at the same time that the Old Testament or the Pentateuch was written, there are other creation accounts that look very similar to ours. Um, and, and that is information that you have to wrestle with. And so going, why does our creation account look wildly similar to others and yet remarkably different in who the God is that we're testifying about in the Old Testament? Our God looks so different. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that's what I would say about. I mean, I, to, in in my opinion, I think the I think the religion only view from an Old Testament stand, standpoint makes the most sense, just because I've read the Egyptian creation myths, mm-hmm. and I mean, it, it's um, it's eerily similar, right? The Genesis account versus the the uh, the Egyptian creation myths, and yet I think what Moses is doing is is this whole idea of called it's it's called demythologizing, and that's taking myth. And and uh, using myth in such a way to say, hey, um, all of your your gods that you've been worshiping in the in the uh, Egyptian pantheon um, are weaker than Yahweh, and so um, this is I'm, I'm exalting the real God by demythologizing the uh, Egyptian um, cultic worship system. 
I don't personally think, and this is kind of, if I'm pushed, this is where I would land, is I don't personally think that, that uh, you have to hold one or the other. I think you can do a religion-only uh, view that, that says, no, the emphasis of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to give a scientific account of how the earth was created, but to demythologize the Egyptian pantheon and so establish the nation of Israel as the people of God, right? Um, which I think is what's happening, period. In the book of Genesis, that's what's happening. Um, that's the main thrust of the book. However, I, I don't think that just because um, it's, it's a demythologizing technique by Moses that it makes the account historically untrue. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so, I mean, um, and I would agree with Nika. I mean, I've, you know, I see I, in the life of Jesus, I see Jesus all the time doing what has happened over, you know, years or decades or, you know, centuries. I've, I've, I watch him do it really quickly, right? And so I'm, I'm like, well, Jesus can do that. Why can't the Father do that when he creates by, by, by Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Why can't he, why can't he um, create the stars and make them pretty, you know, and do that really quickly? Shine bright like um, a diamond. To where now, now we're, uh, we're seeing and, and we're learning through, through the scientific method and, and observation that, okay, this is the way it is now. But I, but I think there's uh, a little bit of dogmatism to say, but that's the way it, it, it has always been. Um, again, I would say, you know, I, um, if you want to hold to that, great. It's not in the center of the circle. I don't really care. I'm not going to fight you over it. Um, but but uh, there's other views. Anybody else? Tyler? Micah? All right. What's up, man? Uh, James Parks. Uh, <clears throat> so this is a, a slight tangent, uh, but, but only slight. Uh, moving on slightly in Genesis. So the six-day creation theory is based on a little reading of the, the first couple of books of Genesis. Um, and then the 6,000-year theory is based on uh, a genealogical study of uh, the book of Genesis and, and other books and, and, and measuring uh, literally where it says, you know, and this person uh, lived this many years and they had a son and then they lived this many years, etc. So... Um, is there a theory uh, that God has uh, God created men before He created Adam, or that He created men before He decided to intervene in a specific man's life? Uh, the reason I ask is in Genesis chapter four, uh, it says Adam uh, and Eve had a son, and they named him Cain, and then Cain, and then they had another son, and they named him Abel. Um, and then uh, Cain killed Abel, and Cain says uh, to the Lord, uh, the Lord says to Cain, rather, um, you know, you're banished, and, and Cain replies to the Lord, my punishment's too great, uh, I've got to leave, I've got to become a homeless wanderer, anyone who finds me will kill me. Well, at, at that point, the only people on the earth should have been uh, Adam and Eve, his mother and father, uh, so they would surely have, have known him, and it, it seems strange that he would say, anyone who finds me would kill me. And then it says, the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. Again, you know, his mom and dad would be the only people on earth. They should know who he is. So uh, is there a theory that, that proposes that, you know, when, when scientists study um, uh, fossils of uh, humans or uh, Neanderthals or whatever, and they come back and they say that this is a million years old, it's, it's much older than 6,000 years, that perhaps the two could be compatible. 
that there could have been life and, in fact, intelligent life before Adam? Yeah, um, there is. Um, and so it would probably fit mostly with the religion only and the theistic evolution um, types of views. And that was one of the things that I think is an important distinction that the day-age theory, for example, the ones that hold to an old earth, don't necessarily have to hold to an evolutionary um, theory. Um, so there's theistic evolution does require an old earth, um, but you don't have to be a theistic evolutionist to believe in an old earth. But in this case, yes, um, and the, the theological term for it, I believe, is homo divinus, uh, when the divinity happened to a homo sapien, right? And so it was, in that theory, um, I don't know a whole lot about it. I do know that there are resources you could go and find about it. It's kind of like what you said. It's that there was man, uh, or a form of mankind, before that act of God, and then we see Adam, and then we go from there. Um, and yeah, that would fit more with a theistic evolution view. Yeah, I mean, you're pointing out one of the, so when you talk about weaknesses, pros and cons of each of the views, that's a, that's a massive weakness of the young earth view. Uh, people are like, where do they come from? And uh, young earth creationists would say, well, Adam and Eve had multiple kids. We don't know how much time had passed before Cain killed Abel. And so some of those people might have been brothers and sisters. And then, of course, they're like, oh, so you guys believe in incest. And we're like, well, I guess so. Uh, and, and so you're stumbling upon, yeah, I mean, one of the bigger weaknesses, and that's why, you know, I say when I read the Old Testament, I'm like, it's a lot more attractive to think that they're not all just marrying the brothers and sisters. Um, so, yeah, I do think, and, and to Tyler's point, there is the view that, uh, that perhaps evolution created, and then humans come along, and then God goes, okay, at this point now, I'm going to intervene, and, and then this is where man becomes accountable to me. Um, and it is a view that's out there, absolutely. Yeah, I would. Do the um, actually, have you ever heard of uh, the Evangelical Theological Society uh, (ETS)? Um, they actually have. There's a journal they publish, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. It's called Jets. Um, and two years ago, um, at their annual conference, this was the question that was being asked around issues uh, concerning the historical Adam. Was there one? Was there multiple? Was was the Adam and Genesis a type of um, of of uh, mankind that existed at the time? And so the the answer to your question is yes. I mean, there's multiple theories around around that. I mean, um, I don't necessarily have any problem with saying that when God created uh, man, He created mankind, and that in Genesis one and two we are he, we're hyper focused in on. Um, you know the the Adam and Eve in a garden, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there were that there weren't other people outside of the garden. It's just that um, Adam and Eve were serving as a type of all of them, which is the same theology we get in Romans, where it says you know through one man sin entered, you know all of of mankind because Adam was a type of everyone else. Um, so also um, life was brought through one man, Jesus Christ. And so now there's cons to that as well. Um, but I do think it's interesting. Um, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not, a, I'm not anything like that. But I do th- I've heard at least that, that there is um, some compelling evidence to, to show that um, fr- from a genetic standpoint that this can be traced all the way back to one person, um, and which I think is interesting, um, that all human um, genes can be traced back to one man. Um, my, and, and which I think begs the question, well, who's that guy? 
um, and we just don't know. So, any follow up from that? Because I may have spewed some heresy there. <laughs> I don't think yeah, I did, though. I think you were referencing the. I think it's the mitochondrial atom. Yeah, I um, that's the gene that, if you wanted to look that up, kind of goes back to one man, and I, um, I believe if it, go, it goes back to um, four. Um, it goes back to four men and one woman. Um, which you could trace in the, the genealogy of Noah and his daughters who married four men. So it's just an interesting. Hi, my name is Jody. And if anybody has, I, I don't necessarily have a science question, but a, kind of a sub question. So if anyone has a science no, question. Good. Go ahead. Okay. So I've been obsessing about this, <laughs> this target thing a little bit. Good. <laughs> um, I can see. Um, I've just been thinking about the words in the outer two areas, and I can see where most of them would be debatable. I'm having an issue with the inerrancy one. Oh, man. You just triggered Nate. All right, everybody, call your family. You're not going home tonight. <laughs> Somebody take the mic out of his hand. I'm just kidding. That's a fantastic hey, y'all, question. Y'all when be, we get y'all off Y'all be in. gentle, okay. right? No, no, no. It I is a fantastic question. Yet. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> And I guess just to beef up what I'm thinking, um, you know, like I said, I see a lot of most of those is debatable, but I feel like that, that scripture is very clear that it is God breathed, um, and Jesus is the Word. I don't I don't know if Je- that means Jesus is the scripture, but so if that if that is the case, then are we saying that Jesus is not all true? Um, I just, you know, and once you start picking and choosing, you're starting to create your own religion, and um, so just... Yeah, no, that's a great question. What what was your name again? Jody. Jody, yeah. We keep saying great question. Just come to great questions. Um, Yeah, no, that's a great... uh, It is a great question, and it it gets asked a lot, um, especially around here, because in our tradition, we're, like, hyper-focused on the Bible, right? Yeah. and I'm, I'm glad to serve as a corrector um, for that. Um, I think that um, I think that you're on to something in your own comments. I think you were starting to answer your own question, um, and that is that um, uh, one, the 66 books of the Bible have not always been the 66 books of the Bible. So typically, when people think about that the Bible is inerrant, they're thinking of one body of work that is without error, right? Um, which I think begs a lot of different questions, and the one I would the one I would start with is um, what was considered inerrant when Jesus was alive, right? What was or what was considered inerrant um, in in the primitive Christian community? Um, what was considered scripture? I think you could, in fact, I, I know you can ask the question: What is scripture, right? Um, over two thousand years, um, I think that that's a really good question. I mean, we've some of the champions of Christianity um, have not always held to even the canonicity of the 66 books of the Bible. Martin Luther didn't like James. He just tossed it out, you know. Um, some of the early, um, you know, uh, heretics in the church literally just, like, cut out sections of Scripture because they didn't like it. And, and uh, so it's um, – my, my point being is that I think at the very center of inerrancy, if you're going to talk about um, inerrancy, which I think – Initially, you need to even ask the question, what do you mean by that, right? What do you mean by inerrant? Um, a lot of times people will be like, well, it's, it's, it's like perfect in like uh, grammar, spelling, words, all that stuff, which 
do five minutes of homework and textual criticism and you know that that's not true, right? So typically, um, I think a, a good definition of inerrancy is that, that scripture is true in what it touches. It's true in what it teaches. And so, and, and I would say, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and, and I think that's because scripture testifies about Jesus um, and that Jesus is at the very center of, of Christianity. So, um, so I would say that um, our bibliology or our, our view of scripture is subsequent to the Christ event. So there was a man who lived and, and, and claimed to be God and died on a cross and rose from the dead, right? Um, that event is not scripture. That's an actual historical event. And that's what is in the center of, of the, the concentric circles. Um, that's why people can... Um, and and, and our, our bibliology is based on our Christology. So I hold to a high view of bibliology. I hold to a high view of inerrancy because I hold to a high view of Christology first and not the other way around. I think a lot of people in our tradition invert that. They hold to a high view of Christology because they have a high view of the Bible. And I would say you've got it backwards. Um, because typically what ends up happening is people bring up real you know, issues with um, you know, uh, some, of peop- some people's definition of inerrancy, and you immediately start to backpedal. Um, so I think what I would say, um, just to kind of tie this up, and then somebody else can comment if you want, um, is it's important to ask, what do you mean by inerrancy? It's also important to, to, to keep Jesus at the center and also to recognize, um, man, people can, people can believe all of the essentials about the historical event and not believe that axe heads floated in the Old Testament, right? Or that Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale, or that all, this, all these kind of things. Case in point, one of my heroes of the faith is a guy named uh, Jack Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis. And a lot of the Old Testament, um, of these stories in the Old Testament, Lewis flatly rejected. I'm not willing to say, hey, that guy is no longer Christian because he didn't hold to a strict view of inerrancy. That's what I mean by the essentials. Like, if you drop any of those things, you're no longer Christian. And I would say you don't have to hold to inerrancy to be a Christian. Comment. Because <laughs> I know so, you want to. Okay, so I don't know that I got all of that. But what I heard you say is that, you know, as, as long as you're believing in the event. That's exactly right. Okay, but I have a very good Mormon friend who believes in the event. Yep. There's a lot of people who believe in the event, but doesn't mean they're Christians. Right. So, yeah, and I think what we'd say to that is there, not only can you not take anything out of that circle, but if you're adding things into it that take right. away from the event, and so if you ask a good Mormon, they would say your faith is insufficient if you don't also believe in the Book of Mormon. And that's what we would say. No, no, no. The historical event of Christ, if you believe in his death and resurrection, that is enough for salvation, even if you've never read the Bible or have no clue about the Book of Mormon. And so what's happening is, is the, the tradition of the Mormon faith is saying, not only is this event true, we agree with all this, we look a lot like you, but you also then have to believe in the teachings of Joseph Smith. And that's what we'd say, well, now you're wrong because you're adding to this circle and making things essential that aren't essential for salvation. Yeah, and but that's you could the, the you'd be taking away from our circle if you're not believing in the accuracy or inerrancy of. So I would circle. say one of the things that I think got left out of this circle that I would put in there um, 
thanks, Tyler. No, yeah. I'm just <laughs> um, Is uh, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and uh, I think that's essential to Christianity. If you don't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, in Jesus alone, then you cannot be Christian. That's an essential doctrine. And I don't, that's not the Mormon position. So that's where I would just point to him and be like, hey, you may believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but if I say Barney, then half of the room is thinking of what? The purple dinosaur. The other half of the room, the older half of the room is thinking who? Huh? Barney Fife. Exactly. So I'm saying Barney, and what two people are hearing is two totally different things, right? And so Mormons, and I've not, I know many Mormons, um, will say Jesus, but the Jesus they're talking about is not the Jesus of history. And that's what I would point to to say, hey, you, um, you know, your, uh, your Jesus is not, the, is, is not the Jesus of the historical, uh, is not the Jesus of the historical event, which gets into issues of, around um, a, a lot of questions that we're going to answer at this training day event. <laughs> and so I'm going to plug it again, like, please go register, um, come to the event and get equipped. And so just to also just kind of help you out. So there, there is a slippery slope with this inerrancy thing. But I think the point that we're trying to make is you can, if you hold to what's in the center, and I can't even see what's in the center anymore, but then you go, you know, I'm not entirely sure about all the dates mentioned in Second Kings. I'm not sure that those are entirely accurate, which is a part of what people who don't hold to inerrancy, a lot of them aren't like, raging heretics that are on this far end and going, I don't believe anything. They're going, hey, I'm just not sure that all of the dates are extremely accurate, but I absolutely believe in the historical event of Jesus. We would say, hey, they're still a believer. And so now, if you're going to legitimately believe in this historical event of Jesus and Jesus himself testifies about the word testifying about him, then you should have a high view of scripture. And it shouldn't be a far stretch to say you're an inerrantist. We're just not willing to make the leap to say that has to be held true for you to be a Christian. Now, do I think you should? Yes. And if I were to disciple anybody, I'd say, hey, it's not in your center circle, but it needs to be real close. And so I don't want you to feel like we're lessening the value of Scripture in no. any way because most of what we know about that historical event comes from the Word, which we do believe. And, and I am an inerrantist, and so I'll just tell you yes, but I don't, I don't think you have to be one in order to, to be a Christian. Yeah, and I think what we need to guard against, too, is, is uh, um, bibliodolatry. Which is, which is making the, the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible the central thing. At that point, you've gone off the reservation, right? The center of Christianity is not the Bible. It's a person. His name is Jesus, right? And so the scriptures that testify have been about him, we hold in high regard because of Jesus and not the other way around. Go ahead, last question, and then... We got a break. All right, uh, Michael Wallace, and uh, it says here that science seeks to answer the questions what and how, and faith seeks, seeks to answer the questions who and why. I get the I get the who, but I don't get the why. So, why did he create Earth? Why did he create us? Yeah. Um, one one answer to it. Uh, I think there could be many uh, possible, but. Um, one answer that I, I really like to give on, on Monday nights when we have that kind of question is that if you look at um, God before creation, um, and we talked about the Trinity, right? And so you had this community um, of um, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, in perfect union, in perfect community. They love each other perfectly. 
Um, they serve each other perfectly, but what they don't have to do is forgive each other, right? And so this concept of grace, which is unmerited forgiveness and um, favor on top of it. So not only do you not get what you should have, but you get what you, should, you didn't deserve. That's grace, right? And so that was not present in the Trinity. And yet it is a glorious aspect of God. And so he needed a creation in which to show grace. A, a people whom he could give mercy to. And so you see in that sense that the whole creation and the timeline of it and the, the apex of it at the cross was part of the plan of, of displaying the glory of his grace um, in, in the creation that he made. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a theological question, which is why it's not science. And, and I think that at the end of the day, um, it's love, right? Um, God is love. Where, where there is love um, within the, the perfect unity and communion of the Trinity, um, God cannot not create because um, that's an aspect of, of uh, and, and we see it in our own lives, um, is that love, um, love, is, love is shared and love is also um, by nature bears fruit. And, and I think that that's exactly what we see in the creation. I mean, in Scripture, obviously, you know, um, you know, talks about um, the creation being created um, for the glory of God, um, for God to interact with us um, in, in the ways that he has. And I think this, this underlies um, and highlights the entire point of Scripture, and that is, is that we totally jack this up, and, and God is fixing it. Um, he is fixing it. Um, and and ultimately, we'll fix it. Um, the question is, um, who are we going to trust? We're going to trust ourselves and our capacity to understand, um, it, or or to have the answers to everything, or in our ability to save ourselves from the chaos that is um, our existence, or um, are we going to place our faith in God? So I think it's probably a good statement to leave the night with. So next week. We will be answering the question, um, is Scripture reliable? Um, is, is what they wrote then what we, what we have now, and how can we trust that? And so I promise you next week you will feel like that you are drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> I'm going to try to go as fast as I can to move through this stuff, but it's a lot of stuff. So I would definitely encourage you to come back next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Y'all have a great night.